Well, that is a bold prayer this morning. Did you catch that last little phrase, that every thought would be captive to Christ? It's a bold prayer. I don't know what you're thinking about this morning. But are you willing to have it become captive to Christ? I was thinking as uh, Mark called up the parents and children, how beautiful it was. And then he said half of our congregation is walking out the door. And I went, what? (laughs) It's only a good thing when parents and children leave to go down there. Um, But even that, I go, okay, can we take that thought captive to Christ? And we're brought here together, that we're part of a body together, that there's purpose for you being here this morning. So again, I don't know what you've come in with, but I don't know how connected you're feeling right now. I don't know what you're thinking about in terms of the transition we face. But can we just let every thought become captive to Christ? And by the Spirit, just shift our focus to the life-giving Word. We've been on a journey these past 10 months. I wrote that sentence and then I went, yeah, we've been on a journey for the past 10 years. I've had the privilege, the joy, the opportunity to be your pastor for 10 years. And we've come into the last 10 months and... Ten months ago, I had no idea that that would be the case. But we've been on this journey in the last ten months to unpack what we declared together as our seven shared member values back in January of 2020. And I went back and looked through some meeting minutes that was first proposed back in April of 2018. And we started this journey of looking at our governing documents, of our governing systems and structures. And that process led us to the point in January of 2020 that we said, okay, we're going to affirm this new document, this new constitution that had these seven shared member values in it. And then we get to January 2021 and a lot happened between those two dates. And we started to unpack these together. To ask the question, I think, are they really our shared member values? It's one thing to put them in a document that, for the most part, lives on a shelf. Okay, honestly, no judgment. Who has pulled out the Constitution and read it since January 2020? Okay, a few of us have. Yeah, a few of us have. But to a certain degree, this is a document that we go, okay, it's good to have, it's necessary to have for our organization, but it really doesn't apply to our organism. And my hope has been that as we've walked through these seven shared member values, that we, that we begin to go, oh, well, maybe there is a place where it does apply to our organism, our spiritual realities in this place. And so my hope has been and continues to be that these seven shared member values that we've articulated would would really become values for us. Affirmation, grace, humility, trust, submission, maturity, unity. You go, okay, there's seven shared member values. How have we been talking about this for 10 months? Well, we took a few breaks in there, but we've tried to take one of those for a month, and so... This month, as we begin October, man, who who is shocked that it's October? (laughs) I am shocked that it's October. But we've come to October. We bring this journey to an end, and the irony is not lost on me that this 10-year journey that we've been on together is coming to an end. And so I found great comfort and encouragement this week to come with a text that that we really see the beginning of the end of Jesus' ministry with his disciples. 
Like these are the last words, the beginning of the last words that he has with his disciples in John 17. And I thought, how fitting that we would, on this journey of 10 years, on this journey of 10 months, that we would come to the end and, and be in this text. And to hear the words of Jesus as he is preparing to leave. And it was encouraging to me to go, what is Jesus talking about at the, at the beginning of the end of his time with his followers? Unity. Because it's a powerful, powerful reality in our lives. And so my hope this morning is that we can walk through this text, just a short portion at the end of John 17. We'll start in verse 20. And then that we can ask and answer three questions together and glean from that some instructive things for us. So let me just read the text for us. If you have your Bibles, uh, I would appreciate that you'd open them up and that you'd follow along. The words will be on the screen. I think it's just healthy that if you have a copy of the scriptures with you, open it up and we have Bibles back in the pews. You can grab one of those and We're in John 17. John is the fourth gospel, so it's the fourth book of the New Testament. If you go to about two-thirds of the Bible and open it up, you'll be pretty close to the gospel of John, and then we're in chapter 17. Let me start in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. In them, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the end of a longer section. It's a section that begins back in John 13, and Uh, The disciples and Jesus have celebrated Passover. They've kind of retreated um, on their own to celebrate Passover in the upper room. And so this is part of a text that's known as the upper room discourse, even though I would would suggest that this part of the text, they have left the upper room. But it's a continuing conversation. So in this, I, I think these verses, while they're going to inform and reflect the context of this discourse, I think they help us answer three questions. For whom is Jesus praying? For what is Jesus praying? And bear with the bad grammar, for why is Jesus praying? Okay, just had to keep the symmetry there. For whom is Jesus praying? For what is Jesus praying? For why is Jesus praying? Now, you may ask, how do we know that Jesus is praying? Well, picking up in verse 20, we see the word ask. That could be translated prayed. But we know that he's praying because at the beginning of the chapter, we're told that he begins talking to the Father. Now, this... This is interesting. It's probably a different kind of prayer than we might have in our minds. Uh, Because Jesus and the disciples are now on the move. They're not in a meeting. So they've had a meal together. Jesus has been talking with them around this meal, this table. 
Judas has departed them to go and betray Jesus. Jesus has come to a transition point and he says at the end of chapter 15, hey, let's get up and go from here. And so now they're on the move, and so Jesus is continuing this conversation as they're walking through the city of Jerusalem. Now, um, you know, most markers around Jerusalem would say that the upper room is somewhere near the Zion Gate, and they're walking through the city, and they're coming through some tunnels, and they're going out the Zion Gate, where uh, it, it, it exits the city of Jerusalem. You get this landscape view of Jerusalem. And then they would turn and head down the Kidron Valley, which is about a, 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 it's a fair walk then to the Mount of Olives. So they would go down into the Kidron Valley, they would walk this uh, picturesque walk, and then they would head up into the Mount of Olives, where he would go and pray at the Garden of Gethsemane, and then be arrested And then he would take a slightly different journey back into the city where he would be tried, eventually crucified, and then again taken out of the city and buried. So they're on this walk. They're on the move. And and I don't know how often you take a walk with someone for the purpose of talking with them. But, but I get the sense that Jesus somehow, you know, there's still 11 men with him. They're walking along this path, this trail, and he's just carrying on this conversation in such a way that I believe that they can hear him. And then all of a sudden, at the beginning of verse 17, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Hey, they're still walking. They're still engaged in this conversation that they've been having in the upper room and now on the move. And Jesus simply engages the Father now in this conversation. It does not say that they stopped, found a quiet place, sat down, bowed their head, folded their hands, closed their eyes, and Jesus prayed. And so Jesus begins to do something that is incredibly natural to him. He begins talking to the Father as if the Father is part of this conversation. Is that how you pray? This is kind of a bonus. It's not one of our three questions. That's that's not a question that I was intending to answer, but I want to ask it. Is that how you pray? Do, Do you just invite God into your conversation that you're having? And so for all we know, they're still walking along and Jesus just goes, hey, I've been talking to these guys and Father, I just want you to be part of this conversation. And and all of a sudden, something else begins to happen as Jesus prays. Not only is he involving God in the conversation, he begins sharing his heart with those that are with him. Is that how you pray? Do you, do you see prayer as this opportunity to just go, hey, God the Father, here's what's on my heart for these people, for us together. I long for that to continue to be cultivated here. That idea where, where, where prayer can be more on the move than in a meeting where prayer is just an extension of the conversation that we've been having together around the Word of God about walking with Christ, and we just go, Father, here's my heart, and together we just share our hearts with the Father. So we know that Jesus is praying because the text is very clear that he's praying. Now to our questions, for whom is he praying? Just look at verse 20 with me. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. All right, so he is praying for those with him. Yes, do you agree? 
Okay, so, so he's praying. I, I'm not just praying for these. I'm not just asking for these around me. We're on the move. I don't know if he's just talking about the 11 or if he's thinking about those that are kind of milling around the city. I think his mind is on the disciples, his followers. I'm praying for them, those who are with me. And we begin to get an interesting distinction between the prepositions with and in. Uh, Friday night, uh, maybe one of the highlights of my week, um, I, I had the opportunity to gather with four men around the word. I've affectionately dubbed them the preaching team. So beginning in November, you are going to experience a, a team of preachers opening the word for you here at Meadows. And I'm so excited like, I've sat with these men, and we've opened the word together, and we, we dissected Matthew 1 and 2. It, it was so exciting that I was like, man, I think we're coming back for Advent. Okay, probably not, but man, I'm thrilled for what's going to happen here from this place. And we have a veteran among us. Stuart Patterson's been preaching for, oh, so many years. And he's so gifted and good at it. And so it was so cool to see him kind of slip into uh, instruction of preachers. He loves to develop leaders. I'm so thankful for that. And so he began to just kind of pull from his vast resources of preaching to go, hey, here's some things that you want to pay attention to. And we began to talk about the importance of with and in as prepositions. So Jesus is praying for those who are with him. Okay, this little cartoon, uh, you may not understand the Greek written there, but it's translated with the lion. Okay, so um, let's just put Jesus in place of lion, okay? So a with is, you know, being on the road with, on a journey with, around this person, near this person, that's with. And the disciples are with him, and he's saying, I'm not just praying for those who are with me, but I'm praying for those who will believe in me. In is very, very different. So here's the picture of in. This is what it means to be in Christ. It's a completely different picture, isn't it? Walking with the lion is maybe an easier thing. Now, we have to put the lion in a cartoon context because I don't know any of us that really wants to walk with a lion. But I'm pretty sure that nobody here wants to be in the lion. But this is what Jesus says, I'm praying for those who are with me and for those who will believe in me. And I think we began to get a clear picture of what believing in Jesus means. Believing in Jesus means that you will allow the lion to consume you. Believing in Jesus is walking up to the ferocious beast that you don't know if you can trust and saying, all right, you can have all of me. You can, can, you can consume me. You can overtake me. I will become part of you. Have you believed in Jesus? Or or are you walking with Jesus? There is a significant difference. And and I don't want to assume that we're all believing in Jesus. So I, I want to put it to you. Ha, have you come to a place where you've looked Jesus in the face? And you go, well, he's not here. But you can. You can come to terms with Jesus Christ. 
You do that by coming to terms with what he has declared to be true in his word. That the only way that you can have life that matters at all is to be consumed by Jesus. Giving up every facet of who you are and entrusting that to him believing that he is good and the good giver of life. Have you done that today? Do you believe in Jesus? Here's what I love about this text, is it tells us that if you believe in Jesus, through the message that has been passed down for century after century, that he prayed for you and is praying for you. I've been prayed for many times. I've been prayed for in this space many times. And every time that has happened, it's humbling. The fact that Jesus Christ prays for those who are with him, I don't know if it really dawned on them in that moment, but I hope that it dawns on us today, those who are believing in him, Jesus prayed for you. That should be humbling. Being prayed for is special. We've had many people stand right there in the center of this room. And we've gathered around them as a body and we've laid hands on them and we've prayed for them for various reasons. For healing, for the sending out, for special requests. We've we've done that together. And it is a special thing to stand and be surrounded by people, to be enveloped by people who love you and care for you and believe God's best for you and pray for you. And that's what Jesus Christ has done for you if you believe in him. Oh, it's such an amazing thing that the creator and sustainer of the universe prays for us. Now, if you're here today and you say, wow, that lion picture, that kind of got to me. I don't know if I've allowed Christ to consume me. And please hear, it's not too late. And that is Jesus' ongoing invitation. That is his prayer, that as this message goes out, people would respond to the message. And so today is your day to respond. To humble yourself and to hear this invitation as a glorious invitation to be consumed by something marvelous. That's Jesus' invitation for you today. It's his hope for you today. It's his desire for you today. And I share in that hope and desire. And if there's anybody here that has said, I don't know that I've come to a place where I've allowed Christ to consume me. I'd love to talk with you afterwards. Any of the elders would love to talk to you afterwards. Mark Barnes, Mark Hoffman would love to talk to you afterwards. Jesus prays for those who are with him and who will believe in him. For what then is Jesus praying? Okay, so if he's praying for us, if he prayed for us, it's important for us to know, well, what was he praying for? Well, let's just look at the text in first part of 21, that they may all be one. Okay, that's the short answer. He's praying for our unity. He's praying that we would all be one. But as we mentioned way back at the beginning of this series, in the first weeks, I gave an overview of how all of these values begin to point toward unity. 
So affirmation points towards unity and moves us towards unity. Grace, it moves us towards unity. Humility moves us towards unity. Trust and submission and maturity, they all move us to unity. And in, the, in one of those messages, I said, and unity is not created. It is maintained. And so Jesus isn't praying to the Father, Father, would you help them figure out how to be unified? That's not his prayer. He's praying, Father, would you help them to realize and be impacted by the truth about unity? And I believe that because he says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us. Jesus is praying that we would realize that we have been brought into something far bigger than ourselves. That, That we've been brought into something that is far better than we could ever come up with. And that we've been brought into something that's far easier than I think we make it. Because so often we are striving to create unity. So we go, "Mm, can we try to find something in common? Can, Can we try to all look the same? Because that seems like it would bring unity. And those things are so hard to do. You go, I can find something in common with everybody. Okay, maybe. But does that drive the depths of your spiritual relationship? Driving the depths of our spiritual relationship, this interdependent relationship that we have with one another, means that we actually have to celebrate that we're different that we're uniquely made and gifted, that we have a unique part to play, and then to affirm that in one another, to come together so that in that relationship, things work. And that really is resting in what Christ has already done. We we just have to work not to mess it up. But that is helped by realizing A couple of things. This is what I think Paul is praying about in Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. Paul's prayer is not a new and original prayer. Paul is praying what Jesus prayed. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the earth, before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is praying for the Ephesians, saying, God, would you just help them to be strong? Would you you help them to be able to realize, to comprehend, to know, to implement the truth of what's happened? And I believe that's what Jesus is praying. He's praying, God, would you enable them to know that this is true, to live in the realities of these, these truths, to realize what's going on here? So what is Jesus hoping we will realize? Well, the first thing I've already said, that unity is not created, but it is maintained. Jesus is hoping that we will realize that we don't have to create unity among us, that it exists within the Godhead whom we've been called to. And we have to maintain that. We have to be careful not to do things that disrupt unity. He's also hoping that we would have the realization and understand the impact that God through Christ shares his glory or his name with us. Look at verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Whoa. Jesus Christ is praying to the Father, the maker of heaven and earth. And, and, and the one who is worthy of all glory, who has all glory, that, that we read about in Psalm 66 this morning. 
And Jesus says, hey, Lord, would you, Father, would you help them to realize that your glory you've given to me, and I'm giving that glory to them. Whatever that means, it's significant. Now, there is some debate about what that means, but, but I believe that it, it means at least a couple of things. As Paul says it in Ephesians, that we've been given all spiritual blessing. That we've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. That means that, that what God has given to Christ in his person and character in his inheritance, in his authority, that that has been passed on to us in some way. But God's glory and his name throughout Scripture are connected. And so when God talks about his glory, he's often talking about his name. Again, we read it in Psalm 66, this connection between the glory of God and his name. And throughout Scripture, what we're told is God is most glorified in the act of redemption. That God was glorified in creation. He created everything perfectly, and everything that he created went, wow, and they glorified God. Creation sung his praises, and then sin entered the world, and God made a promise, I will redeem this. And all of a sudden, God's glory was connected to his plan of redemption. And so in every move of redemptive history, God is glorified. And the scriptures reiterate that over and over and over and over and over again, that God's glory is connected to his work of redemption. And that his name is connected to his glory. That's why it's so important that we understand that that we, we come to the name of Christ. We're saved in the name of Christ. And so John, just in the context of his letter, bookends his, his letter with that idea. And so in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, Name is connected to glory. Glory is connected to his work of redemption. He gave the right to become children of God. So in all that God sharing his glory with us through Christ can mean, it most certainly means this. He's adopted us as his children. We are the children of the heavenly father. I don't know uh, how your relationship with your dad is. Um, I know that I have not been a perfect father. And and so this metaphor of father and God can get distorted really, really quick. But being adopted as God's children is an incredible reality. Being adopted into the family of God opens up the myriad blessings of God in your life. And he says, this is accomplished through my name. This is how I share my glory with you. I share my name with you. At the end of the book, in chapter 20, Verses 30 and 31, John says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. So in all that God sharing his glory with us through Christ could mean, it definitely means that he's adopted you as children and he has shared his life with you. Life abundant, life everlasting. He has shared his life with you. Jesus is praying that we would realize, have this realization, and live out the impact of unity uh, 
in the sense that unity flows out of the Godhead, in the sense that God through Christ shares his glory and his name with us, in the sense that we have eternal life in the presence of God. Jesus says in his prayer, at the beginning, he says, when Jesus spoke these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said to the Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom he, you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. When Christ shares the glory of God with us and imparts life to us. The understanding of eternal life in Scripture is a knowing relationship with God. It's this connection with the source of life. And so Jesus says, will you help them understand, will you help them realize that they're connected to the source of life? And would you allow that to impact their lives? If you really know that you're connected to an unending source of life, what impact could that have on you? All of a sudden, sickness kind of pales in comparison, doesn't it? All of a sudden, um, you know, to, to come to the end of life here on earth, knowing that we're inseparably connected to the source of life for all eternity, pales in comparison. Seeing our trials and suffering and the troubles that come into our life begins to pale in comparison, knowing that this doesn't suck my life because my life is connected to this unending, inseparable source for all time, for all eternity. All of a sudden, it puts a little spin on that idea of living hope in Peter, that this this life gives us hope that sees us through everything. Finally, I believe that Jesus is praying that we would realize and experience the impact that we are loved by God. Right at the end, he says, I made known to them, in verse 26, your name. And I will continue to make it known. I'll continue to remind them that they're in your name, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You are loved by God. It's amazing that the God of the universe would turn his affections on us. The book of Romans says that the love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And that gives us a hint at how all of this can be realized in our life. How all of this can be infused into our lives and that is by the Spirit. It's interesting to me that the context of this conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples is all about the Spirit. He's saying, hey, Father, I I pray that you you would help them to realize that when I send the Spirit to them, it will make all the difference in their lives. And isn't that what we see played out? Like Jesus is having this prayer before they get to the Garden of Gethsemane and what happens when the soldiers come? He's deserted by all his followers, right? They're cowards. They they haven't come to realize or to really uh, experience the impact of unity yet. But when the Spirit comes, watch out. These people are different. Because the Spirit is what gives us this realization and understanding of the impact of unity in our lives. And Jesus is praying that we would have that realization and experience that impact in our lives together. Scott, you can skip over the next slide. It's a duplicate. For whom is Jesus praying? He's praying for us. He's praying for those who believe in him. 
For what is he praying? That we would have a realization and experience the impact of the Holy Spirit in our lives. For why is Jesus praying? First, he's praying because our joy is connected to our unity. In verse 13 of chapter 17, He says, but now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. He's he's walking along the road. He's bringing the Father into this conversation in the hearing of those who are with him and for us that are in him. And he's saying, God, I'm speaking these things into the world. I'm saying these things out loud so that they would have joy in them. My joy When you think of Jesus Christ and the degree to which he experienced joy, what do you think? Let's just take a poll. Do you think that Jesus experienced a low degree of joy? No, I don't either. Do you think he experienced a high degree of joy? So that even when he goes to the cross, he's motivated by the joy that's set before him. He's motivated by the joy that's stirring up in him because he knows that he's glorifying the Father. He knows that he's accomplished all that the Father wanted him to do. He knows that he's walked perfectly with the Father. And so he's filled with joy. And I I, I think that informs our understanding of joy because there are some moments in Jesus' ministry in his earthly life where there's some discouragement, where there is some weariness, where there is some just physical exhaustion. And yet, he experiences joy to an incredible degree. And so he's praying for our unity, that that we would understand our place in him together, that we would understand, realize, and experience the impact of the Spirit in us so that we have that kind of joy. But it's interesting that it puts it in the context of unity, right? Our unity together, our willingness to engage in maintaining the unity, our spiritual relationship as people brings people into this congregation and moves people on from this congregation, how we absorb them, how we include them, how we enfold them into what Jesus is doing here impacts our joy. When when there is disunity among us, we all suffer. And when there is unity among us, we all experience joy. Because Jesus prayed for it. For why is Jesus praying? Because our joy is connected to unity so that we may have joy. For why is Jesus praying? Well, we just have to look at the so that's now. So uh, it starts verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I've given them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. Now, that's, that's the second time he said that. It's the second time he's told us that, so that. The first time was just above that. That they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now we have two different words there. The first word, believe, trust, come to a conclusion that yes, because of how I see God's people, I can affirm that Jesus has been sent from God. We're supposed to bear out this testimony in the world in how we live together. So not only is our joy connected to to our unity, but, but God's mission, his plan is connected to our unity. Our effectiveness for the kingdom of God is connected to our unity. If we want people to believe that Jesus was sent from God, we have to maintain our unity. 
And so Jesus is praying, knowing that in this world we're going to have trouble. In this world it's going to be hard. In this world when our diversity comes together, unity will be threatened. So I'm going to pray. Why is he praying? So that our ministry, our effectiveness would not be hindered. So God's plan of redemption moves forward so that people will believe. All right, so we get to the second one where he says, where the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now, uh, this is a, a rational understanding. So it's not just a mental assent, a belief. Okay, I believe in Jesus. How many people do you know that go, I believe in God? Sure, he's out there somewhere. But I don't know that God loves me. People will come to know that God loves them because they're looking at us going, wow, that unity is really uh, uh, compelling and it must be because God loves those people. What else would connect these people like that? But to understand that God loves them. God loves each and every one of you in this room. And because that is true, and because of the extent to which that is true, we're called to love one another. We're called to express compassion and care and kindness and affection to one another because God loves the other person. And that brings us back to affirmation. When we say that God loves you, we should also be quick to say, and so do I. And so do I. Because God loves you, so do I. Because you've been given the name of Christ, I love you. I accept you. Because you share in the glory of God through Christ, I love you. I have affection for you. I'm for you. Because you're experiencing the work of the Spirit in your life, I love you. That's hard. And so Jesus is praying because our joy is connected to our unity and because our effectiveness, people's just mental assent, there is a God, there must be a God because this people is cool. But to go one step further, that God is a loving God. People come to that conclusion because they see the love of God among us. So Jesus prays for our unity. And so should we. I know that I have not always perfectly maintained unity. Okay, there have been times and seasons in my ministry where I have uh, let a guard down or succumb to a tactic of Satan, a discouragement or uh, an offense. And those are the things that we have to be on guard against. And what helps us is when we are praying about unity the way that Jesus prays about unity. When in our conversation, when we hit moments like that, oh, may it be that we would just lift our eyes to heaven and say, Father, here we are in this moment where Satan, who longs to kill, steal, and destroy all that you've given us here, he's on the prowl. So, Father... We're praying for one another. We're praying because we believe in you. We're praying for each other that we would be unified, that we would be one, that we would begin to do that in the moment. As we're walking down the road together and there's conversation that gets misunderstood or when there's an offense that gets uh, misunderstood or taken in and bitterness begins to fester, that we would stop in that moment and lift our eyes to heaven and go, Father, right now, That's how we maintain unity. That we get good at praying on the move and not just in a meeting. 
And then that we can see each other rightly. Oh God, in this moment where there's some tension stirring up here, would you help us in this moment to remember that man, this unity doesn't come from us. It's it's not even about us working this out, though it is, right? But it's not about that. It's about both of us, whoever it is between all of us, submitting to the reality that we're brought into something bigger than ourselves. Oh, the number of times when there was friction between me and another person, if we could have had a good conversation about, hey, you know what? We're part of something bigger. All of a sudden, taking our eyes off of this issue and getting it on the big scope of what God is doing just changes the conversation, doesn't it? To be able to acknowledge to one another, hey, we're about something bigger. And let's not let this take us off the task. Let, let, let's not let this affect our unity because there's something bigger going on here. Oh, oh that we would be quick quick to remember that that God, through Jesus Christ, has shared his glory with us. That we're children of the king together. That we have life together in the king. And and when those issues come up, that we go, you know what? We're co-heirs with Christ. Let's not let this tarnish our inheritance. That, that we would be quick to remember that um, this is going to last for a long time. This, right here. Because guess what? If you believe in Jesus, we're stuck together for eternity. Oh, to just be quick to say, hey, you've been given everlasting life. I've been given everlasting life. Isn't that wonderful? And that means we're going to be together in heaven. So how about we not let this little thing impact our whole, not just life, Our whole eternity is so much bigger than we see, than we know. And all of a sudden, the things that get at our unity just become so small. Oh, that we could remember, you're loved by God, I'm loved by God. You're loved by God, I'm loved by God. You're loved by God, I'm loved by God. Together, we're loved by God, and we're filled with his spirit. We can get through this so that we experience great joy together, And so that we experience incredible effectiveness for the kingdom. I long for the reality of Acts to be true in this church and in a new church in Iowa. Where God, by his grace, would add to our number day by day those who are being saved. Because they see unity in the body. Let's pray to that end. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have brought us into a relationship. That we are in Christ together. That you've brought us into this unity that is part of the Godhead. Lord, that's astounding and sometimes hard to comprehend. But Father, as Jesus prayed for us, I pray for us that we would have realization and that we would experience the impact of those realities. Father, for your glory, for your honor, for our joy, and for the expansion of your kingdom, we pray and ask these things. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and respond in song.